We often think of God as our rock in terms of uh, something solid or secure in times of tribulation, in trials, right? That, that God is immovable, and so we take comfort in Him, our rock. And that's true. God is a refuge. He is our strength. But the sense of the rock in that last song that we sang, rock of ages, cleft for me, is rather that God is our safety and security in light of His judgment, that Jesus alone is the one in whom we, we can hide before God's just gaze. That it's Christ's righteousness, the very righteousness of God that covers us. We hide in Christ. He's our rock. More than just a refuge in the storm, He's our justification. He's our righteousness. He's the one who died in our place on the cross and said, It is finished. And that's a truth that sets us at rest. That's a truth that calms our hearts when we consider what Christ has done in our place. You know the joy of finishing a task, right? You, you complete something and you look back on it and say, wow, it's done. This is, of course, tax season. Sorry to bring that up. Right? So in a, a week and a day, I think, is, uh, is tax day, Monday the 18th. And so if you weren't aware of that, that's probably some good information for you to know. We have a few in our congregation that are keenly aware of that information and have been preparing for weeks and months uh, in light of that coming day. There's nothing quite like the day after that when it's finished, it's done, right? Taxes have been paid. Ah, I can get that off my mind. Maybe you can think of a task that you have completed and you worked on after, you know, Days and weeks, maybe even months, and then finally it was done. It was finished. There's a sense of satisfaction, of rest. It's, it's done. This is what Jesus cries from the cross. And even as John encourages us here in John 19, you, you saw it in our reading, his encouragement is that we believe it's finished. We believe that Jesus' work is enough and that it's done. We trust the one who died in our place. And so as we consider this text in John 19, here's our theme for today. Believe in the finished work of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now our text will describe for us why we should believe. John's going to describe some various aspects of the cross that encourage us to believe. And so that'll be the main question we answer today as we work through this test. Why should we believe that it's finished on the cross? And John answers that for us. But I also want to work at applying this and how this changes the way we view life. How as a result of our faith in the one who finished the work, we are left in a place of rest. That we, through our lives, ought to look to his finished work. And this leads us then to worship what he did on the cross. So we'll come back to those three ideas again at the end of our sermon. So, friends, believe in the finished work of Jesus, the Lamb of God. We have a change of scene in verse 28. John uses the words, after this, to kind of mark a change of scene. It's literally moments, maybe minutes at the most, after the previous stuff. Uh, Jesus is still there hanging on the cross. But there's something significant 
that marks our timeline now, John points it out. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. So everything up to that point, the word were now in the New King James is the word already. And it it means that sort of up to this point, everything that needed to be done was done. It was accomplished. You can almost imagine Jesus as he goes to the cross, thinking through the checklist of the Father's will for exactly what needs to play out, the things prophesied in the Old Testament and the various tasks that Jesus would fulfill as he went to the cross. And so there's Jesus thinking through, yep, check, I was beaten, I was mocked, yep, check, the crown of thorns was on my head, yep, check, here I am, lifted up to draw the world to myself, check. And so he comes down, everything that needs to be done has been accomplished to this point. There's one more thing. Jesus, knowing that, now John points out to us, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. There's another thing that needs to happen. And so Jesus cues the next event by saying, I thirst. Now, the words themselves, I thirst, are not the fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, Jesus very much would have been thirsty. This has been a long stretch of time. And when you're on trial and being mocked and beaten and on the way to the cross, I mean, they're not you know, offering you drinks along the way. Would you like a glass of water? You're probably getting thirsty by now. He's been up all night, right? They arrested him the previous night, took him to court, and so on and so forth. And so, of course, Jesus is thirsty as he goes through this. And now the sun is up and Jesus is on the cross, and so he's hot and he's dry. And so it's very true that he's thirsty, but John points out there's something deeper going on here. He's also fulfilling Scripture, and we're clued into what exactly is fulfilled in verse 29. John points out, now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there. This is a type of vinegar wine, a beverage, primary ingredient being vinegar. Sounds delicious, doesn't it? It was popular because it was cheap. So there's this vessel of sour wine sitting there, and they fill a sponge with this sour wine, put it on a stalk of hyssop, and put it up to Jesus' mouth so he can drink. And John gives us all those details because... It helps remind us of what is being fulfilled here. Now, there are a few interesting things that happen. First, the hyssop is mentioned. That reminds us of the Passover scene. You see, it's actually Passover week. It's Friday, and that's the preparation day for the Passover meal on Friday night. And that brought their minds back to their time in Egypt as Israelites when God brought them out on the very night of Passover. You remember his instructions. You, you kill the Passover lamb, a lamb without blemish. And then you take that lamb's blood and you use a branch of hyssop and you put the blood on the doorposts and over the top, the lentil, and on the other side. So even here, the hyssop is drawing our minds to what's going on in the scene here and all the timing of this. Our minds go back to Exodus 12 when those Passover regulations were described. So here this hyssop stalk is used to give Jesus a drink. But there's more in the fulfillment here. 
Psalm 69:21, which has already been quoted in the Gospel of John, is fulfilled in Jesus, but now is, is fulfilled here. It says this, They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's probably the Bible that even Jesus used during his life. It's the exact same word as sour wine that's used here. So I think the reader's mind would have gone back to that psalm, Psalm 69, verse 21. Sour wine, vinegar. It gave him vinegar to drink. And so even in light of that prophecy in Psalm 69, we understand that this isn't so much about thirst as it is about suffering. I mean, imagine uh, you're dying of thirst and you get this high-content vinegar drink uh, to drink in your thirst. But not only that, remember Jesus is cut and bruised and bloodied. And so even as the sponge filled with vinegar touches his mouth, it kind of pours down, You can imagine how that feels on his open wounds. So this is another bit of suffering, and I think that's why they offered him the vinegar drink. The one who had promised to quench our thirst now cries out in thirst as he hangs on the cross in our place. Having received the sour wine, Jesus continues on and he says, It is finished. When he had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. So, Jesus, again, knowing that there's something else to be fulfilled, cries out, cues the next event. Okay, it's time for the drink. I thirst. Soldiers bring the sour wine, just as the Father predicted in Psalm 69. Jesus drinks it. Now he thinks through all the Father has planned for him, and it is finished done. It's accomplished. That word finished is the key word of these opening three verses of this section of Scripture. That word, the root of that word finished is actually mentioned three times in these three verses. In verse 28, you see it twice. It's not obvious in English, but when John says, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that's actually the exact same word as it is finished. It's accomplished. It's fulfilled. It's done. It's completed. That's the word. Now, the same root of that word is used in the very next phrase, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Same root. Fulfilled. Accomplished. Completed. And so Jesus, looking back on the fact that, yep, He said, I thirst. He got the vinegar. He drank it. It is indeed fulfilled completed, done. Every prophecy that God had spoken in advance was completed. Every task the Father had given him to do was done, and it was now all paid in full. And following that, Jesus bows his head and gives up his spirit. He's been in control from the beginning, and even as he dies, he's the one who gives up his spirit, who hands it over as he faces the first death, the separation of body and spirit as Jesus experiences death in our place. It's finished. He finished his work. He finished the Father's work for him. This has been the theme through the Gospel of John, back in 434, 546, 17.4. Jesus spoke to his disciples and followers, I must finish the work 
that the Father has given me to do. Three times in those places he says that. I must finish the work the Father has given me to do. And now as he hangs from the cross, having had the vinegar, that last piece of the puzzle, he says, it is done. It's done. And he gives up his spirit. He finished what he came to do. But I think it's also significant that the final thing he does is to drink. Because as this, in John's view here, becomes the final piece of the puzzle, everything up to this was accomplished. One more thing to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter just before he was arrested to go to the cross? He said to Peter, should I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? And so here, right before he says it is finished, he drinks what metaphorically become the final drops of the Father's cup of wrath for Jesus Christ before he's able to say, it's done. I drank it all. It's finished. So Jesus says, I thirst. Yes, physically he's thirsty, but his call of thirst is, no, there's more that the Father has for me to drink so I can pay the price of sin in full. And he did. He finished. It's done. It's completed. As John weaves these threads together in what happens to Christ on the cross as he prepares to give up the Spirit, we see that Jesus is this perfect Lamb, the spotless one who lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father, fulfilling every command of the Father, every prophecy of Scripture from the Father. And so not only is He the worthy sacrifice, but even there to the very end of His life, He was obedient to the Father and drank the very last drop of the Father's wrath as from the cross He cries, It is done. And then gives up his spirit. This is the kind of Savior we have, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And by his death, he finished the Father's work. This is what Jesus does on the cross. By his death, he finishes the Father's work. And this is why you and I, friends, can trust in this finished work of Jesus Christ because he himself, knowing perfectly what the Father wants, cries from the cross and says, it is finished. My work is complete and gives up his spirit. So friend, you can believe in the finished work of the Lamb of God, because as this spotless Lamb hung from the cross, He Himself said, it is finished. I can remember as a student, every now and then, taking timed tests. I'm glad we don't really have those as adults. Isn't that nice? You remember uh, somebody's got a stopwatch to you and you've got to finish a test by a certain time, Right? I specifically remember the fill-in-the-bubble tests, right? So for those perfectionists out there that had to take their time and make sure the bubble was filled all the way in and all the edges and you didn't go over the edge and so forth, these tests could take quite a while, right? And so you're taking this time test and you've got the nervousness and the pressure of getting this done. And it always frustrated me, you know, the time would run out and, you know, it's like three bubbles left. You get those bubbles in, pencils down, the, the supervisor would say, okay, okay, pencil down, you know. But there's just one bubble left. You know, it's not quite finished. That pressure to get it done in time, everything completed. 
There's that temptation to tinker with things at the very end. There's a uh, the great British baking show, I think it's called. I've watched it a few times. And one of the significant things that happens is they have a timed baking uh, event that goes on. And so as they get the, near the end of this event, there are a few bakers that have far more to do than is allowable in the amount of time they have left. And so there's always this urgency that they have as they're you know, tossing flour around and trying to mix the last bit of uh, frosting for the cake and, or cover the top, put the little decorations on the top in the last few minutes. And you know, again, the, the people in charge often have to say, step away from the table. You, know, you can't touch it any longer. It's done. It's finished. The time is up. There are very few things in this life that we, we look at when, we're, when something's supposed to be done and we say, well, yeah, I think that's done. And we often want to go back and tinker and keep working on it and keep adjusting and keep doing more. And this is often what we do with the paid-in-full nature of the cross. We like to tinker. We like to think there's more I can do to finish it. Instead, we ought to think more about maybe, maybe debts that have been paid in full. I tell you, something I've never tinkered with is my finished student loan debt. Never gone back to the bank and said, well, do you want a little bit more? <laughs> well, I, I know it's done, but I was just thinking maybe some more would be good, you know, and we don't do that with those kinds of things. It's paid in full. It's done. So too, with the Father's wrath, as the Lamb of God cries from the cross, it is finished. So friends, we can rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross. When we believe that Jesus did indeed finish this work, we rest in who He is and what He's done. We're not calling the bank up and saying, do you want some more? I I feel like I should pay some more. No, it's completed. It's done. Jesus paid it all. He finished the work. He's the righteous one. He fulfilled every prophecy of Scripture about Him, which makes Him the qualified substitute. There's only one who can take your place on the cross, and that's Jesus, because He never sinned. He fulfilled every word spoken about the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He's the one. And he did it perfectly. He fulfilled the wrath of the Father. It's paid in full. Now every human has a choice. You and I, friend, can either accept the gift of God in salvation through Jesus or choose to deny the gift of Christ and try to pay the price in full yourself. Friend, I encourage you today, receive the full payment for your sins by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you have received salvation through the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, then remember that He paid for your sins in full. He drank every last drop of the Father's wrath. You can rest in that truth when you commit a sin. Remember that Jesus already felt that sin He already carried it. He already paid for it. It's no surprise to Him. And He continues to love you because He already knew about it and He loved you on the cross when He paid for that sin that you committed. The Father doesn't demand a new payment. 
It doesn't have extra retribution for you to work off or to pay for what you've done. He looks on you with love alone because Jesus paid it all. It's finished. No anger, no wrath. That was all given to Jesus. So that paid in full status gives us rest. It's with a restful disposition that we serve God, not in fear of punishment, but in gratitude for salvation. We're energized in the Christian life, not by fear of God's punishment or retribution, but by gratitude for what He's done. That as I look to the cross, I remember it's paid in full. Of course I'll live for you, Lord. And when I fall short, I'll thank you again for the cross where my debt was paid in full. And I'm still learning the size of that debt. This is so encouraging for us, friends. Paid in full. So as you start each day, as the anxieties of schedule and people begin to creep into your mind and heart every morning... Am I going to get things done today? And what will people think of me if I don't get done what I'm supposed to get done? Pause to rest in your paid-in-full status with God. It's finished. It's done. It's nothing I have to do today to earn favor with God. It's completed. You've been granted pure standing before God and you have eternal access to His heaven. And you can't do anything to disqualify from His salvation. And you certainly can't do anything to earn it any further. Thank you, Lord, for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so no matter what happens in your day, rejoice that your name is written in heaven because Jesus paid it all. All of it. Now, Jesus has given up his spirit, and John gives us a few more comments on what happens to Christ on the cross, beginning in verse 31. He reminds us in verse 31 that it's the preparation day. Remember what that is supposed to signify to us? It's the day before the Sabbath. And in this specific case, as John points out in verse 31, this Sabbath is a high day, which means that two significant things fall on the Sabbath. This Sabbath is also the beginning of the Passover celebration. So not only is it the preparation day for a normal Sabbath, it's the preparation day for the Passover Sabbath, which would, of course, start Friday evening at sundown when they'd have the Passover meal. And so John's pointing out to us in the timeline here, this is when they're sacrificing the Passover lambs as they prepare for the Passover meal that Friday evening. And they're preparing for the Sabbath. And one of the things that they tried to do in preparing for a high day like this, a great Sabbath, where two things fell in the same place, was to make sure there was nobody up on the cross because those dead bodies would defile the celebration that they were about to enjoy. And so there's, there's some hurry here. They want to be sure that they get these bodies taken away. And so the Jews come to Pilate and ask that their legs would be broken. This, as far as we know historically, is very normal procedure. They would at some point come and break the legs if those criminals had not died yet. Crucifixion was typically death by asphyxiation. 
You couldn't hold yourself up, and the pressure put on your diaphragm wouldn't allow you to breathe in, and so eventually you wouldn't get enough oxygen and you'd die. It could also be through blood loss. There's a number of ways uh, that crucifixion was brutal in putting people to death. So breaking the legs was a means used to hurry that process because no longer could they use their pierced ankles to push themselves up so they could breathe again because their legs were broken. And so they they hung limp, and it would hurry the process of death. So we find out in verse 32 that the soldiers approach from both sides. They deal with the two side uh, criminals first, and they arrive together in the middle. And these soldiers who had been placed on the crucifixion unit, who were used to seeing what dead bodies up on a cross look like, come to Jesus, and it's obvious to them Jesus is already dead. And so they forego breaking his legs. They don't break his legs. We see that in verse 33. He's already dead. This is part of the testimony we have, that Roman soldiers who didn't really care when or how he died, who knew what death looked like, saw Jesus on the cross and saw he was clearly dead. Verse 34 gives us more because since they didn't break his legs, they wanted to give visible testimony to the onlookers that this one had indeed already died. And so to show it to the crowds, the soldier takes his spear, pierces the side of Jesus, and out comes blood and water, signifying that indeed this one was already dead. Now, we read verses 31 through 34, and this visible testimony we're familiar with, and we wonder, why is this so significant? I mean, is it just simply that John's trying to prove that Jesus is dead. And it could be that John's just trying to confirm in our minds that, look, the soldiers saw, all the onlookers saw, they pierced his side, the blood and water came out. There's no question Jesus was dead. And so certainly that's true. It does prove those things. But I think there's more than that going on. Notice how intentional John is in verse 35 about making sure we understand his eyewitness testimony. He says, he who has seen these things has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. And we go, okay, well, why is this so important, John? Well, he wants us to believe. We've caught that. That's been clear all through the gospel. So verses 36 and 37 help us understand why this is so important. It's not just to prove he died. Verse 36, for these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. So now we know why John points it out. It's not just to prove he died. John's helping us see that even after his death, Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. God is still in control. Now, what Scripture exactly does this fulfill? There is a reference in Psalm 34:20 that talks about the, the righteous the righteous one he will be protected his bones will not be broken and it's kind of a, a general description of the one who's seeking to serve Lord that ultimately God will protect that one from harm but it's it's a general reference and I and I don't think it's exactly what John has in mind here John's already drawn our attention to Exodus 12 when he mentioned the hyssop. Exodus 12 is the passage where the Passover regulations are mentioned. 
And in Exodus 12, when it begins to talk about the qualifications of the lamb, there are clear instructions in Exodus 12, verse 46. Let's say, once you're finished with the lamb, you will be sure not to break its legs. Interesting. And here, John points out, after mentioning the hyssop, after making clear that this is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, here again he says, His legs were not broken, so the Scripture would be fulfilled. None of His bones will be broken. He is indeed the Lamb of God, the perfect Passover lamb. And even though the soldiers have no idea how all this is playing into God's plan, they pass up on breaking his legs because he's already dead. But in God's view, what God is doing is declaring to the Jews, watching this very scene unfold, that this one is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The irony here is clear as the the Jews think that this corpse of the Son of God is the source of their defilement on Passover, when in reality he, He is the true Passover Lamb and the only source of their true purification. As Jesus hangs there and fulfills the very words of God from the cross. There's a prophecy, another prophecy that's mentioned in verse 37. This one comes from Zechariah. 12, verse 10, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, of course, there was one soldier who actually pierced him, but the sense is that all who participated, all who called for his crucifixion, participated in piercing him. And Zechariah twelve ten refers to a future time when the people of Israel will look on the Messiah, the one that they pierced, and they will mourn. And as you go on in the text, you understand this morning is a morning of repentance, that they finally realize, we did this. We crucified our Messiah. And it predicts a time that the the remnant of Israel will repent and turn to God in faithfulness. We know as Scripture unfolds, this time's going to be at the end of times, just before Christ sets up His millennial kingdom, when the remnant of Israel repents and becomes loyal to their Messiah Christ. John actually quotes this or uses this idea again in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. And he talks about it as still being future at that point. In Revelation 1, 7, it says this, Behold, He is coming, Jesus, with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him, even so. Amen. He's coming again. And the one who was pierced for our sins, every eye will see him in that last day. Some will mourn in repentance, thanking Christ for saving them, for dying in their place. Some will mourn in fear, still rejecting him. See, every eye will see this one that they pierced. As this blood and water pour out, of course, there are medical scientific reasons that this is what would happen. doesn't happen all the time, but it's a possibility that the bruising and so forth on his chest would have caused fluid to build up around his lungs. And so then when his side was pierced, both blood and a clear liquid that would have been seen as water come out in that case. But there's more significance to this. As the Lamb of God is pierced, his blood spills out 
exactly what was done on Passover. After the lamb was killed and they were careful not to break his bones, the blood was used to remind them of the passing over of God, um, God's wrath for sin. Indeed, there's more. The water itself coming from Jesus reminds us of John 7, verses 38 and 39, where Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here, by his death, Jesus opens the flow of living water for those who believe in him. As we just sang in Rock of Ages, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. As Jesus dies and his blood is shed, we see this, by his blood he cleanses our sin. This is what the blood of the Lamb was shed to do, to cleanse our sin. This is what was predicted the Lamb would do, be the Lamb who took away our sin. And by the shedding of His blood, there could be remission of sins. And so by His blood, He cleanses our sin. Maybe you've tried to get a stain out of something before. It's difficult sometimes. We were doing a load of laundry, and uh, we noticed that one of, the, one of the blue bags that we use here for the kids at the church, one of the blue bags had some, something on it, frosting or something like that. And it needed to be washed. So we, we threw it in with a load of our laundry to get that thing washed and put it through the washer and the dryer. And we're pulling everything out. And as we begin pulling the clothes out of the dryer, I just notice some like green splotches all over uh, some of my dress shirts and pants and things like that. Well, that's really odd. What could that be? So we start digging through the dryer to try to find out what happened and come across the blue bag from the church and start digging through that. And there down at the bottom in this warped, deformed state is a crayon. So there was a crayon in the bag and indeed the wax from the crayon had landed in splotches all over a variety of clothing items from that wash. And so we worked diligently to scrub and, you know, we tried every solution and uh, it came out of a few items and it did not come out of a few items. And so uh, we have permanent reminders of green crayons in our home. I think what I'm wearing today is okay. If you notice something green, just let me know. It's hard to get stains out of things As a soccer player, my uniforms often had blood stains on them uh, from myself or from others. It's just a common thing in soccer. And uh, so one of the great tricks I learned through the years playing soccer is that your own saliva has enzymes that break down your own blood. And so you can spit on that stain and rub it for a little while, spit a little more, rub a little more, and the stain disappears. Isn't that a great tip? You're welcome. See, got something of value out of the sermon today. Isn't that good? We find all sorts of ways to try to get stains out. And so I remember on the soccer team in my coaching years, uh, the ones who washed the uniforms for the team, uh, I told them this trick. And so whenever they'd find blood on a uniform, it became a hunt. We got to find this player, right? What number is it? Who are they? We'll track them down. Okay, spit on this for me, you know? And so this became the practice so they could get the blood out of the uniforms, But you see, with the stains of our sin, it's only the blood of the Lamb that can cleanse our sin. 
He's the only one. And His blood was shed to cleanse our sin. So friend, look to the one whose blood cleanses your sin. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. See, He reminds us, first of all, that our sin has a real cost. When I do something wrong and sinful, I know what it costs. It doesn't just disappear. There's one who paid for it. But I don't dwell in that laments over what I've done, I instead look to what Jesus paid. He paid it in full, and His blood cleanses my sin. And so I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus even through my sin because I remember, yes, it has a cost, but also He paid it in full. It's cleansed. It's done. It's gone. He reminds us that our sin is cleansed. And so when you feel condemned, remember that His blood was shed for you and there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When you feel dirty, remember that His blood has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. This is the power alone of the blood of the Lamb. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And indeed, one day, all of us will look on Him whom we pierced either with gratitude for what He has done or with rejection, saying, I don't want your payment. What will your response be that day when you see the Lamb who was pierced for you? We come then to the burial of Christ in verses 38 through 42. I want you to notice a few key things. Again, this is all hurried because they want to get the bodies down before the Sabbath arrives Friday evening. But here instead, we have two men who seek to serve Christ, even in His burial. And there's a unique transition that happens. First, we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea. And in John, we don't know much about Joseph. The other Gospels help us to understand that he was rich, he was a ruler, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he just bought a tomb near the cross there. So all this is sort of coming together. He's a man of power. In fact, he can just go right to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. But what John points out is that he had been a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Now, this was actually a pattern. Our minds might go back to John chapter 12, when John points this out, when actually Jesus points this out. He says, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. I think Joseph was probably one of those John 12 followers, a powerful man, a ruler, but following Jesus in secret from a distance, not wanting to lose his place. But now boldly, he goes to Pilate and asks for the body, something has changed. Pilate agrees, gives Joseph the body, and then we're introduced to Nicodemus in verse 39. We're familiar with Nicodemus, but just in case we don't remember, John points out he's the one who came to Jesus by night. And in this context, I think the night is similar to Joseph of Arimathea, where maybe there's a sense of fear going on there. Nicodemus was also a powerful man, a ruler, another member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee and a teacher in the land, and a wealthy man. So he too had been sort of following in secret. But now he comes out of the woodwork as well and is ready to serve and worship Jesus. 
He brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Now, Roman pounds, translated to American pounds, diminishes that to probably around 65 pounds or so. But that's still a significant uh, amount of spices and aloes. These are probably oils and different things. What they would do as a part of a burial is they would put these spices and oils all over the body as they were wrapping the body. So under and in between the different layers of wrappings in order to keep the body of a good fragrance instead of a bad one as it would begin to decay. And in wealthy funerals, this was not uncommon to use this much spice and aloe. Now, just for comparison's sake, you remember Mary poured out her fragrant oil, spikenard, at Jesus' feet. That was one pound. And if you remember, the cost of that one pound was a year's wages in that day, 300 denarii. So, kind of funny numbers here, but if we were to take that today and say, let's just pick a number, $70,000 for that one pound of spikenard. So now you've got Nicodemus bringing 65 pounds of spices. Now, it's unlikely that they were all as valuable as Mary's spikenard. That was like the top of the value list of spices and aloes. But still, this is a wealthy gift that Nicodemus brings to Jesus to anoint his body with these things for his burial. So in verse 40, they take the body of Jesus, they bind it in strips of linen with the spices to hold the limbs and the jaw in place to keep the fragrant nice, as is the custom of the Jews to bury. They follow the custom Jewish burial. It's very likely that both Nicodemus and Joseph had to touch the body, which would have left them defiled in Jewish law, not not necessarily a sin, but defiled, unclean, meaning they would not have been able to participate in the Passover, which could even signify to us that they're beginning to see the change that has taken place, that there hangs the Lamb of God, and now they're caring for the true Lamb of God, and that the old Passover ways aren't as important to them as they used to be. These followers, something has changed now through Jesus' death. These scared rulers now have courage as they care for the body of Christ. One last thing to catch from this text. John points out something significant in verse 41, completely unnecessary. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. And so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Now, there is a sense of hurry here. They want something close, but this is Joseph's burial chambers. And so it's right there near the cross. But John points out a bit of information that's completely unneeded. He points out a garden. First, he says that the place of crucifixion, the place of the skull, is actually in a place of a garden. So there must be a larger garden in this area, and the place of crucifixion is within that garden. And in the same garden, there's also a tomb. So we're talking very close, and both of them located in a garden. Why does John point out the garden? Think of it. You could read that sentence again. You could totally delete the information about the garden. It's absolutely unnecessary. (laughs) But John points it out. With this reference to a garden, if we look at the significant parts of what Jesus is doing, his arrest, his death, his burial, 
and His resurrection. Do you know in each of those, John mentions something? A garden. Every single time. Jesus was arrested, was crucified, was buried, and was raised in a garden. Now, it's hard to guess for sure why John points that out every single time. It may be that he's trying to help the reader see that this is sort of a a restart from the garden of old. That garden where sin entered the world, now in this garden, sin's price has been paid in full and defeated. That garden when Satan was the victor, now Christ is the victor over Satan. Maybe that John's highlighting these transitions as Jesus is laid in his tomb. But there's something more that I think John is highlighting here. There have been a number of allusions already to John chapter 12. In fact, that's where Mary pours out her own oil and offering to the Lord is in John 12. That's where these rulers are mentioned as men who dwelled in fear, John chapter 12. And that's also where Jesus says, unless... A seed falls to the ground and is buried. It bears much fruit. So here, Jesus, the seed, is buried in the garden and he bears much fruit. And this is what we see in this final section about the burial. By his burial, he produces much fruit. Jesus dies, and as he's buried in this garden, already we see the fruit he's produced in Joseph and Nicodemus, men who were afraid and following from a distance, now have seen the cross. And even as they bury Jesus, they're bearing fruit in their lives of worship, responding the way they should to what Jesus has done, worshiping him with this gift of oils and aloes and myrrh giving him this new tomb where there there were no other bones in this tomb. So when Jesus was raised, it was clear. (laughs) There's only one in there. We know who's missing from that burial site. By his burial, he produces much fruit. He finally pays for Adam's sin, the sin of every human after Adam. In his death, he proves by his burial that he's conquered the curse and will one day reverse it as far as the curse is found. In his death and proved by his burial, he offers everlasting life to everyone who believes. And in his death, proved by his burial, he purchases redemption for mankind enslaved to sin. And so, friends, like Nicodemus, like Joseph, this leads us to worship. We see what Jesus has done on the cross and we say, sure, have my tomb, have my aloes, have my spices, have my wealth. I don't care what they think of me any longer, but Lord, I've seen what you've done for me and so I'll worship you. This becomes the right response to the one who died for us. And so as we look to the cross, as we see the one who died to give us life, to bear much fruit, we then say, he died for me. So I will obey. He died for me, so I will lay down my life for my spouse. He died for me, so I will forgive the person who has wronged me. He died for me, so I will be patient with those who have done wrong against me. He died for me, so I will battle sin in my life. He died for me, so I will live for Him. And so the work of the Christian life is restful because Jesus has finished the work and it's 
energized by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross where we say, oh, I will worship, Lord, because I've seen what you've done for me. By his burial, he produces much fruit. So, friend, I encourage you to believe in the finished work of Jesus, the Lamb of God. By his death, he finishes the Father's work, so rest in what he has finished. By his blood, he cleanses our sins, so look to the cross and remember that his blood has cleansed it all. And by his burial, he produces much fruit, so let that fruit work in your life as you worship him in response to what he's done on the cross. This is how we respond to the one who died in our place, the finished work of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. Help us to trust and worship him with our lives. And we pray that in all these things, Christ would be glorified because it's he who lives in us by faith. We thank you for Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen.